Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. If you have, uh, if you have a copy of, of God's Word with you this morning, I invite you to find 2 Corinthians uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're having trouble finding 2 Corinthians, just go to 1 Corinthians and make a right, and uh, there it will be, okay? It's kind of neat the way they laid that out there. Uh, two follows one. It's interesting. Um, but uh, we're going to be getting there in just a moment. We're going to be looking at uh, the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. Now, if anybody knows much about biblical history and about, especially about New Testament, uh, New Testament history and, and, and lore, uh, you know the Apostle Paul. We mention the Apostle Paul a whole lot in, in church. Probably we mention him more, not, not more than Jesus, but we mention him right up there. He's probably the second one we mention after that, the Apostle Paul. So many people would think that the Apostle Paul, the first missionary, the greatest, maybe been the greatest Christian that ever lived, would have an amazing prayer life. But what if I told you he struggled in his prayer life? He struggled in his prayer life. Does that make you hopefully feel a little bit better to know that maybe Paul was a human being just like the rest of us, right? Last Sunday, we, uh, we looked at the account uh, of the end of John the Baptist's life, another hero of the faith that we would think, man, he must have never had a moment where he questioned God or thought something was a little off in his faith. But we saw that at the end of his life, it doesn't look like Jesus came through the way we would want him to come through, right? Because he sends that letter over to Jesus and says, hey, I'm in prison. I need you to bust me out of here because I'm in prison because I've been preaching the gospel and you told me that I could come and announce your arrival and I'd like to get out of prison and be with you while you minister. And uh, he says, I- I'm willing to still be your hype man, man. We can go on tour. I can introduce you and uh, then you can do your thing and your miracles and we'll just have a great time. And Jesus says, I'm not going to bust you out. Matter of fact, you're going to die there in prison and it's going to be okay, John, because you've done what you were called to do. And we asked that question last Sunday, are we okay with not being the main character in our life story? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Coming to Christ is not just getting heaven. Coming to Christ is also surrendering and laying down ourselves to follow our Savior and our Lord. See, we love to say Jesus is our Savior, but we struggle sometimes with Jesus is my Lord. Because Lordship means I've got to surrender to Him. See, when you consider that Scripture records John the Baptist did, he, was, he did everything he was supposed to do. Jesus said that there is not a preacher, there is not a follower that was greater than John the Baptist, yet it doesn't look like John the Baptist was rewarded at the end of his ministry the way we would like to think it. We'd like to think that John the Baptist would have been given a great retirement package by Jesus and said, man, for your exemplary service, here is a Rolex watch, right? And go off and retire into the sunset. But that's not what he was given. He was given the end of a beheader's sword. And we're stuck with that thinking, man, is this the same God that we just worshiped here? The simple gospel and all those things. Because sometimes we're brought into positions where we have to look at God and say, what you're doing or what you just did doesn't seem to make sense. Anybody ever been there before? Maybe you're there right now where you're thinking, God, I know and I believe you're there. I know and I believe you're working, but I just don't understand why you're working the way you're working. 
And many times we may be thinking that his answer, like we just talked about with the kids, it's so simple when we look at the kids and say, now accept whatever God says. But we struggle with that a whole lot more, don't we? You see, it's what leads us to look at the fact that how do we faithfully follow Jesus when he doesn't seem to be making any sense or when he's leading to places that don't seem to be the safest? Because sometimes he leads us there. What we learn from that is that following Christ is not about us. It's not about us. There should have been more amens there, really. But, but it's, hard. it's a hard truth, right? It's not about us. If it helps you to be judgy in church, look at the person next to you and say, it's not about you. Yeah, that's fine. It's not about you. All right? Now look at yourself and say, it's not about me either. It's about Him and what He wants to do and how He is best glorified through our life. And are we okay if His glory sometimes requires us to be diminished a little bit. Like John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. And he's probably sitting in prison thinking, why did I say that? Right? Why did I say that? I knew he was going to hold it against me. Right? We're in church today, so we have to be honest. Sometimes our faith puts us in questionable situations. Sometimes it puts us in positions, man. Life would be easier. This would be a whole lot easier to navigate if it weren't for that pesky faith that I have and that pesky thing that I need to follow Jesus and do his will. Life with Christ and following Christ doesn't always lead us down the logical path. It leads us down the path of faith. And our faith informs us that God always does what's right and God always does what's good for us and for His glory and He does what's best in and for His children. Because here's what Romans 8.28 says, right? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. That's what Romans 8.28 promises us, right? All things work together for good. But how often do we misinterpret that passage? Because good doesn't just mean good to me. It means good in the scope of God's plan. All things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And you may be looking at that and saying, I've got this assurance. And you may be wondering, when are you going to get around to doing that good, Lord? How many more times am I going to pray and you're going to answer me with, just hold on, just wait? That's what Mary and Martha went through. We looked, at that, we looked at that story about a month or six weeks ago when Mary and Martha had prayed and asked God to come because their brother was sick and getting ready to die. And what did Jesus do? Propped his feet up for a few more days and showed up four days late after Lazarus had died. Why? Because, and what we learned from that, Martha and, and, and Mary wanted Jesus to heal their brother, but what Jesus wanted to do was resurrect their brother. Why? Because sometimes if we limit God to only being good when he does what we, when, by, by him doing what we expect, he never gets to be amazing by doing more than we could have ever imagined. Sometimes God puts us in a place where it looks like he failed so that he can go above and beyond what we ever imagined he could have done in the first place. Listen, if God can only be God because he goes by what my logic says, then he won't be God. He'll just be me. And if that's the case, then why did we need him in the first place? So today, I want to kind of look at that same type of thing. Mary and Martha dealt with it. John the Baptist dealt with it. Just about every person that God used in Scripture dealt with this question. Can I really follow a Lord that doesn't lead me in places that I think are comfortable? Can I really do that? Or that doesn't respond to me in the way that I think he should. And the next one we're going to look at today is the Apostle Paul. 
all reasonable intents and purposes, it doesn't look like God was very cooperative with Paul when he prayed. Now, if anybody would say Paul probably prayed good prayers, we'd ha- the church would have to agree with that, right? Paul's a great guy. He wasn't always at first until God met him on the Damascus Road. But Paul, what we see in Scripture, man, the guy was used to write 75% or pen 75% of the New Testament that we look at and study and try to live by today. He was used to start many churches and he started the missionary movement and all of those things. But Paul struggled in his prayer life and we're going to look at that here in just a second. But have you ever been there maybe? Maybe you've been in a place where you're struggling in your prayer life. You, you're praying, you're praying, you're asking in faith and it just seems like God doesn't get what you're asking. Right? How many of you have ever prayed with urgency? Right? God, you, you need to do this yesterday. Right? Like, it seems like time is expiring. You need to come through on this. We looked at that with Mary and Martha. But sometimes maybe you begin to wonder, okay, what's wrong with me? Because I'm praying a prayer that it just, I'm asking for something that seems so God-honoring, so biblical, so right. Why couldn't God come through? Why won't he come through? You ever been there where you feel like, look, I don't see how it's not obvious to you, God, what you need to do. Paul was there in his prayer life. And he had to be thinking, am I just not commuting this properly? Am I not saying it loud enough? Do I need to go to a special place? Do I need to do a little jig before it? I don't, a rain dance or something to get it through to heaven that I'm asking down here for you to do this. You're not alone because Paul, the one who walked and lived by faith, did the same thing. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 7. We're going to look at verses 7 through 9 this morning. Let's see what Paul says. He says, therefore... We'll talk about what therefore is therefore in just a minute. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan was sent to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. I have to imagine that as he pleaded with the Lord, he's like, the first time he's like, Lord, I got this thorn in the flesh. Would you take it out? Didn't get an answer, and it's crickets, right? Second time, he's like, Lord, <laughs> you know, getting a little bit louder. And then third time, he's doing whatever it takes to try to get God's attention, right? Three times, it would, it would leave me. But here's what God said to me. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak through your word, and I pray that we would hear your word and surrender to your word, because sometimes the words that you say to us they, if we're honest, they don't make sense, and they're hard to follow, and they're hard to trust. But Lord, help us to trust your nature, that you are good, and that you give us exactly what we need, not what we always want, and what we need is always what's best. When we can't, when we can't make sense of what you're saying or doing, help us to make sense of the fact that we trust you and who's doing it. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Okay, so how do we faithfully follow God when he doesn't seem to make sense? And how can we trust that God is good and that he is nothing but good and that he's good all the time when it doesn't seem like he's cooperating or seeing what we see would be good, right? Because sometimes we're put in positions where it's just obvious. If life were going good, it would be going like this. But instead it's going like this and I'm praying and God has still got me over here in this. So how is a good God allowing this to happen? As we've looked already at a couple of examples in John the Baptist, Mary and Martha, and others that we look at in Scripture, let me just just ask you this question. Does it make you feel better to know that the giants of the faith, the ones that are listed in Scripture, go through the same problems that we do? Like, for me, it's therapeutic. And this is another way that we know that the Bible is not 
written just by men? Because if, if I were Paul and I'm writing and the Spirit is not leading me, I'm not writing any of my failures in there. I mean, who does that? Who writes their failures for the world to know? Who writes their weaknesses for the world to know? Here Paul is laying out a moment when he was weak in his prayer life. He's like, I begged and I begged and I begged and I didn't understand what God was saying to me. For me, it's, it's kind of therapeutic to know that other people in the faith, long before I've ever lived, have struggled with some of the same things that I struggle with in my life. See, knowing, and this is what leads to this big truth that we've looked at three times now, is that knowing that Jesus is the answer and believing that Jesus is the answer doesn't mean that we're not going to have questions about him. Knowing that Jesus is the one who saves me, the one who is the Lord of my life, the one who knows what's best for me, the one who guides me, knowing that he's the best option at all times doesn't mean that I'm not going to have questions as I follow him, and it doesn't mean that I'm not going to struggle as I follow him. Matter of fact, Jesus even said that. He said, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a narrow road. You're going to take up your cross. You're going to lay down your life. You're going to die to yourself. That is not like a raw, raw, westernized American type of speech, is it? Hey, come die with me. Who wants to follow that? So let's consider four truths this morning that we have to consider because God can handle our questions. This is the thing about God. God can handle our questions, right? And he's going to require a great deal of faith if we're going to accept the answers that he gives us. It takes a great deal of faith and trust to trust that his answer is what's best for us. So the first thing we have to understand, we looked at this last Sunday, it's the same, same point, is that sometimes following Christ will lead to suffering for him. Sometimes as we follow him, it will lead to suffering for him. And in our American westernized culture, we have this false view of Christianity that God exists to make my dreams come true. We really do. The way many of us have had salvation and God preach to us is, man, you think your life is good now, come to Jesus and it'll get so much better. But what the Bible says is, you don't have a life until you come to Jesus. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Or there's this view that he exists to enhance your life and make you a better person. I've said it before, it probably seems redundant, but I've got to say it again. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. Jesus came to make dead people live. And if our view of Jesus is that he's just an accessory that I pin on the lapel of my already good life, then he's not Lord and he's not our Savior at that point because we have to come to him and realize that he is our only hope and that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and we need a Savior to lift us up from the spiritual grave. Look, we sell Jesus way too short when we adopt the philosophy that Jesus is just there to make all my dreams come true and if I just pray hard enough, I can make him do whatever I want him to do. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead people live. And he also told us that following him would lead to suffering. Isn't this an endearing message to have today, right? Follow Jesus, join the side of the suffering. That's fun. That's why a lot of people couldn't follow Jesus. I said, man, this is too hard. This is too difficult. John chapter 16, Jesus said this. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you'll have peace. He said, in this world, you're going to suffer tribulation. In this world, there's going to be suffering. But be courageous, because I have overcome the world. Notice those two phrases, in me. That means being in Christ, being possessed by Christ, being a part of Jesus. In me, you're going to suffer with me. But be courageous, because as you're in me, know that I've already overcome the world. 
I've already overcome it. Here's the peace we have with the truth. That as we follow Christ, we are going to suffer like Christ. But like Christ, we've already overcome it. We've already overcome it. If you look up in chapter 11, you'll see that when we're talking about suffering, if we're going to sit down and start sharing war stories about what it must have been like to follow Jesus and how much we've suffered for Christ, Paul wins every time. Paul wins every argument. Some of you say, man, I'm really just suffering for Jesus, man. I had to, service started early this morning and I stayed up late last night watching football. I'm just suffering for Jesus by getting here today. Let me tell you, Paul looks at you and says, that is the most bogus thing I've ever heard. Here's what Paul rolls out. He says, I really don't have to give this resume about what I've gone through for the sake of Christ, but if you need it, here it goes. Paul collectively spent about 20 years of his life on a ship traveling from place to place to share the gospel, to plant churches and disciple believers who come to Christ. And in his travels, he ran into a little bit of suffering in those 20 years. Here's what he goes. Here's what he says. <clears throat> Five times he was given the sentence of 39 lashes. Five times. Five times 39. That's like, I'm not taking my shoes off, but you, you can do the math. <clears throat> 39 lashes five times, because if you gave someone 40 lashes and they died at that time, it was considered murder. So five times Paul's beaten literally within an inch of his life. He was beaten with rods three separate times, and you have to imagine that Paul's back at that point was nothing but just scar tissue. It really gives new meaning to what Paul says over in Galatians six seventeen when he says, from this forth no, let no man trouble me because I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if anybody had gone through some suffering for Christ, it was Paul he got stoned three times, not recreationally speaking here, but he was stoned three times. The Bible says at one time, everybody had, had, had thrown the stones at him and they looked down at him and he was just buried under a pile of rocks and they thought for sure he's dead now, so they walked away. And somehow he lived through it and he hulked out and climbed out of the rocks and went on, just kept on ticking. He was shipwrecked three times, talking Gilligan and castaway style. One time he was out in the open water, the Bible says, for an entire day and night before finally washing ashore somewhere. He says that he faced danger from nature. He faced danger from thieves. He faced danger from the Jewish people, from the Gentiles, while he was in the city, in the country, and everywhere he went, he faced suffering for his ministry for Jesus Christ. One time it says that he was coming to a town to preach, and the king ordered the police to meet him and arrest him on sight. And the only way he could escape the city was to be lowered down in a basket out of the city walls so that he could escape. So Paul says, I'll take your suffering if you want to take mine. You want to trade places? Here's who suffered for Jesus. If anyone had the right to say, yeah, I know what suffering's about, it's the Apostle Paul, right? And what was his reward for getting knocked down and continuing to get back up in Jesus' name? What was his reward? We see in our text, God saw fit to give him a thorn in the flesh. It's not enough that my back is covered in scar tissue. It's not enough that my, my wanted poster is up everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. It's not enough that I suffer all of these things. But now, God, i got to have this thorn in the flesh. And we don't know exactly what that thorn was. We don't know if it was a physical thorn. Maybe he got a thorn when he was being lowered down into the bushes. I don't know. But the Bible, some scholars think it might have been an eye disease that caused his eye to continually run, like he's got a horrible case of pink eye or something. We don't know exactly what his thorn was. What we do know is that Paul thought he would be more fitted, to, he would be more suited to better serve Jesus if that thorn was removed. 
It was something that was hindering him from, in his mind, fully serving Christ at the fullest capacity that he possibly could. Maybe he thought it was a disability that he's like, God, if, if, God, if you would just take this from me, I could serve you better. Anybody ever been there before? You look at your disability, maybe you say, well, I, I don't know if I'm as smart as I should be or something like that. And you think, God, if you could just make me smarter or if you could just change this situation, I could serve you better. Some people might say, if I had, if I had a little bit more money, I could go on mission trips. We think, man, I've just got this thorn in the flesh. Whatever it is, our thorn in the flesh, spiritually speaking, is whatever it is we look at and say, God, this is holding me back. Why don't you remove this from me? And God chooses not to do that. Paul thought, I have to be better without this than I would be with it. And that makes total sense. Sometimes following Christ puts us in a position to suffer. The other thing that we learn from this is that prayer is God's continual gracious gift of communication with him. God gives us this gift of prayer that as we serve him and as we follow him, he allows us to check in with him. And he allows us to check in with him to praise him. He allows us to check in with him to talk to him. I love when the little, little boy stopped me as we were getting ready to worship and says, you know what, I can also tell God how I'm feeling. Absolutely. God wants to know how we're feeling. God wants to hear us. He offers us this continual gift of communication. And we can't emphasize enough just how important a gift prayer really is. It's a gift that we oftentimes take for granted. Looking at it and saying that prayer is a continuous gift that God gives us, I wonder how many times we look at it and we would change that word gift to obligation or drudgery. Because a lot of times you ask a Christian what they say, the one thing that I could have a little bit better of in my relationship with God is I could have a better prayer life. And I wonder sometimes what it is that makes us think, I'm struggling in my prayer life. Could it be that we don't see it as the gift that it really is? Or that we look at it as, man, I've got to log my time in prayer today or I'm not a good Christian. That's not how God wants us to view our conversation with Him. He wants us to view it as something that we have the gift and the privilege and the honor to be able to come before Him and offer. The fact that the Lord of the universe has opened up a constant line and invites us to not only use it, but to do it without ceasing is incredible. I'm a parent. Any other parents in here? Have you gone through this season where between like the ages of one to four, that's that period where you think, you know what, I'm going to go change my name and tell no one what it is. Because you're tired of hearing mom, 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 dad, 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 dad. I'm just going to go change my name and not tell them anymore. God says, I love to hear the cries of my children. And I will never turn them away. I will never turn them away. Parents have kind of put it in our vernacular to make us feel guilty as parents. He doesn't get upset when he tries to use the restroom and the kids are outside banging on it. I need you. I need you. Right? Maybe that was too graphic of an illustration. <laughs> the thing that amazes me about the Heavenly Father is that he invites us and he wants us to continually talk with him because prayer is one of the proofs of God's compassion and his presence with us. You can know that the minute you bow the, your head and close your eyes, or even don't bow your head and close your eyes, but you offer your heart and surrender and pray to him, you can know that God is listening and he is present with you. Sometimes we don't know if God's around because we haven't really been talking to him to realize that he is. Paul took advantage of this according to our text. Look at verse number 8. He says, concerning this matter of the thorn in my flesh, I prayed to God how many times? Not once, not twice, but three times that it would leave me. 
That word three, that, that number three has significance because it was basically, I'm going to ask you three different times, three different ways. And we know there are three different answers that God could give. So what we know from this is Paul is basically saying, I've exhausted this request. And I have a full understanding of the fact that God is not going to respond to it the way that I want him to right now. Notice that he has three times that he went to God, but there's only one answer that he ever received. Does that, make, does that maybe indicate to us that when Paul asked the first time and God said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul's like, yeah, that's not good enough, God. We're going to try this again. Might have done that. Or maybe it took three times for him to finally get that answer. We're not exactly sure, but what we do know is this was a nagging thing that Paul could not let go of, and he wasn't in line with what God was saying completely. See, God invites us into a consistent, continual flow of communication with Him. And somebody needs to hear this and needs to hear this today and understands this. understand this. Every time you go to Him, He always listens. He always listens. He always cares. And another thing He always does is He always answers. So take advantage of that gift of prayer. Even though maybe you might feel like, I'm just kind of like shouting into the wind. You're not. God is there and He hears your prayers. And he's working in it. And that's what leads to the next thing, is that the true purpose of our prayer is to surrender his will rather than convincing him of ours. A lot of times we don't like our prayer life because we haven't taken ourselves in prayer in the attitude that we should. See, the purpose of prayer is not for us just to be able to get from God like our spiritual genie in the sky. The reason for prayer is so that as we communicate with Him, we become more like Him and we begin to understand His will better. Anybody ever had your mind changed while you were praying? Yeah? This is why Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, by the way. I'll start out praying for my enemies. Lord, if you would just lower the boom from heaven on their head, and then you keep on doing it, and it's like all of a sudden, Lord... uh, I pray that you would bless my enemy. As we pray, we begin to come around to God's way of looking at things. And this is a tough truth to consider. That the true purpose of our prayer is for us to be committed, uh, us to be convinced of God's will rather than to be convinced of ours. Because this requires us to surrender, to submit, and to humble ourselves. And those are three things that the flesh hates. Those are three things that the flesh hates. The flesh doesn't like to surrender. The flesh doesn't want to be humble. It doesn't want to submit to God's authority and to God's wisdom. And this is the thing that we find ourselves struggling with in our idea and our view of Jesus sometimes. See, how many of you have ever confided in somebody that you were going through some trouble and they said, well, let's pray about it? Anybody ever done that? Like right there on the spot, you prayed about it. If we're not careful, what are we led to do as we walk away from that time of prayer? Walk away from that time of prayer saying, I shared this, God's going to reward me with doing exactly what I asked him to do. That if I just pray, God's going to, and, and, and I even went and I asked somebody more spiritual than me. I even got the pastor or one of the elders to pray over this. And boy, I'll tell you what, God's going to answer now. God's always going to answer. He may just not answer in the way that you want it to. We can assume sometimes from that response, if I pray about this, God's going to change it. But really the purpose of our prayer is not to inform God of what we need. Because newsflash, an omniscient God already knows what we need. It's not even in form of what we want because he already knows what we want. The purpose of our prayer 
is to get us in the mindset of accepting what God already knows is best. The purpose of, of prayer does not exist to obligate God towards a certain action. And what we can learn from Paul here is that it's not the true purpose of our prayer life to just tell God, hey, if you don't do what I ask, I'm just going to keep nagging you until you do. That's not what it's about. See, after the beatings and after the lashings and the stonings and the arrests, you'd almost expect God to say, you know what, Paul? You've done all this for me. You've been, a, you've been a good servant, and I'm going to make your later years your greater years, and I'm just going to remove that thorn from you right now. God could have done that because he's sovereign. He has all authority. He could have done that if that's what he wanted to do, but he didn't, so that means that's not what God wanted to do. You'd expect that God could take a rib from Adam and make Eve. A thornectomy is not a hard thing for him to do. It wasn't a hard thing for him to do. It just wasn't what God knew he needed to do for Paul. Even though Paul wanted him to do it so badly, what answer does God give? Look at verse number 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. So what does Paul cry out to three times? Lord, if you take out the thorn, I'll be stronger. If you take out the thorn, I'll serve you better. If you take out the thorn, people will see your power. I'll be able to tell people that I've been healed from this. And what God says is, but that's not what gives me the most glory. What gives me the most glory, Paul, is that you're going to see my sufficient grace. What gives me the most glory, Paul, is that you're going to see that my power is perfected in spite of your weakness what i mean in other words listen paul i understand that the thorn is pretty uncomfortable i understand it's nagging at you every single moment of every single day and i understand that you want relief i even see your faith i know that you're trusting me with everything that you have and you know that i can do it but i'm not going to do it i'm going to do something else instead i'm going to give you my grace to endure it now paul has a decision to make at this point right I'm not going to take it away. I'm not going to give you the healing for you to praise me. I'm going to give you the grace to endure it. How many of you would like to, at that point, say, you know what? I got pl- I'm full up on grace. Could I maybe have some healing instead? Right? And then he adds salt to the wound, no pun intended. And he says, my power and my awesomeness is made more complete in your weakness and in your suffering. So I could remove this thorn, Paul, but if I do, you won't be able to see my grace as clearly and you won't learn to trust my strength as much. Man, and that's where we come to a, a question of surrender. Am I going to humble myself and accept the fact that God is going to use that thorn to make him better in my life? And that's more important to God than me feeling better for the moment. And this flies in the face of what many people think that God is really there to do. God is not there to make all our dreams come true. And the fact that God loves us does not mean that he makes all of our pain go away. That's our modern understanding of what God's love should look like. But that's not what the biblical understanding of God's love is. God's love is, I will do what's best for you at all times. And what is best for you at all times is being drawn closer to my heart. And being drawn closer to me and seeing my glory. See, Paul wanted relief from the thorn, but God wanted Paul's humble trust and dependence. Look back at verse number 7 again. We see Paul's realization that this was actually a good call on God's part. Look what he says. Especially because of the extraordinary revelations of God, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn was given to me. So what 
and then he says, uh, a messenger of Satan sent to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. So we see that twice. Why, why did God give him the thorn? So he wouldn't exalt himself. God knew that Paul was more useful to him if he was humble. That exalting himself, he knew, Paul, you might get a little big for your britches if this happens. That thorn was there to keep him humble and keep him depending on God. You might be sitting there thinking, man, this is probably easy for you to preach, but you don't know what I'm going through. I don't, but I can assure you this, that God does. God does. It says that he asked God three times to remove the thorn. He wanted it gone. But Paul eventually comes around to understanding it's what was best for me. And that's what leads us to the last point right before we close. Prayer reminds us that we're not in control and it draws us close to the one who is. It reminds us that we're not in control and draws us close to the one who is. One of the hardest struggles of the Christian life is to let God be God. Isn't it? It's difficult. It's difficult to just let God be in control. And a lot of times I believe this is why so many of us admit that we aren't where we want to be in our prayer life. Because we can't just let God be God in that prayer. We have to keep telling God, God, let me be God. And you just do the work of making it work out. See, I feel what could be missing from our prayer life oftentimes is a submission to God's authoritative answer. Do we find that the only time that we're really compelled to pray and run to God is when we've tried everything else and it's not working? Sometimes it's when we decide to pray, God, I've tried everything else I can and all I know to do now is there's nothing left to do but pray. That's the first thing we should have done. But most of us treat our prayer life with God as like, it's like I've run out of bullets so I'm going to throw the gun. He's my last line of defense. Like you've been fighting and you fight and, you've, and you don't know what else to do, so I'm just going to turn to God. And this is why many times we treat prayer as a last resort because all we really want to do is we want to control the world around us and we've tried everything else we can and all we have left to do is, well, maybe I can get God to do it for me. That's not what the place that God wants to have in our lives. The main goal of our prayer life is not to convince God of our will. The main goal of my prayer life is to be convinced of his glory and his power. And his awesomeness. It's to become acquainted with his sustaining grace. It's to become acquainted with his mercy that never leaves us. His grace that is sufficient for us and that helps us to endure all things. It's to be lifted up in peace by his strength and by his continual presence. Do we understand how amazing it is that the God of the universe is in control of everything. Cares about the minute details of your life cares about the smallest of things. We have to understand just how good God really is. And as we close out, I want you to look at this last little bit in verses 9 and 10. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly take pleasure in my weakness my insults, my hardships, my persecutions, and my difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, how much Paul's opinion has changed in this text, right? Just in the matter of a few verses. He's gone from praying, God, remove this. Now he's saying, thanks for this. I take pleasure in it. I take joy in the pain because I have known more about you through that. He says, I'm thankful for the thorn now. When he's like, God, just get rid of the thorn. Now he says, I'm thankful for the thorn because without it, it wouldn't be, 
I wouldn't be drawn to the power of God. He says, I'm thankful for my weakness because that's what taps me into your power and understanding it. I'll close out by looking at this this morning. So, so Paul doesn't necessarily say that, that he's healed, does he? He never says he's healed. What he says is his perspective has changed in this, right? I'm going to throw this phrase up and close by, by correcting something that we oftentimes think is right. Everybody heard this phrase before? Time heals all wounds, right? How many of you have lived long enough to know that that's a bunch of garbage? Right? And in some ways, yes, it does. But I don't think it's a complete statement. I think there's a blank space that needs to be filled in there. Time doesn't heal all wounds. For Paul, going on, if God had just said, no, I'm not going to take it, I'm not going to take it out, deal with it in time, you'll get better, it wasn't going to. What did God say to Paul? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My presence is going to show you my strength. So here's the thing. Time in the presence of Christ heals all wounds. Times in Christ, time in Christ's presence is what heals all wounds. Knowing and understanding His grace that helps us to endure the pain. Sometimes He takes it away. Sometimes He performs a miracle and takes it away. And those are the moments we praise Him. But for the moments that He doesn't take it away and says, it's for your good that you come to understand my grace, understand that it's not the time that will heal the wound. You won't get used to it in time. You'll only get used to it in His presence. We only get used to it in His presence. So as we close out this morning, I just ask this question this morning of you. If you're struggling with your prayer, if you're thinking, tr- struggling with thinking that God is good because He hasn't done what you desperately want Him and need Him to do, consider maybe you're receiving the answer that Paul was receiving. That don't you understand that this is what I am using to point you to my glory. And with Paul, it turned something horrible into something beautiful. So as we bow our heads and as we close our eyes this morning, I just want you to ask and consider, what are the things that I look back on in my life or I'm currently dealing with in my life and I despise them tooth and nail and I despise them to the core that maybe God is telling you that is the very thing that I am using to draw you to myself and to my goodness. And if you have one of those things, I want to pray for you today that you'll be able to surrender that to God and come to a place where you find joy in the midst of the sorrow. And you find His presence to be what carries you through. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask you this morning that you would speak through. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.